Hi, I'm Cassandra Siebels, the 2022-2023 president of the Junior League of Atlanta, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of JLA Inside Out, stories from inside and outside of the Junior League of Atlanta. I have the distinguished pleasure of introducing our moderator, Dr. Yvette Dupree is the Career Technical and Agricultural Education Supervisor and the Coordinator of Youth Apprenticeship for Henry County Public Schools. Dr. Dupree's responsibilities include oversight of CTAE instruction for 10 middle school exploration programs and 45 high school pathway for 200 teachers and over 19,000 students monitoring the district's 11 work-based learning programs. She's also responsible for professional development for teachers, administrators, coordinating the administration of end of the pathway assessment testing, grant management, and industry certification. She is passionate about developing CTAE programs to provide students with career preparation and structured work experiences linked to their coursework interests and goals. Certified in marketing, business, and early childhood education, she has taught high school business, marketing, and served as an advisor for Future Business Leaders of America, DECA, and charting a chapter of the National Technical Honors Society. Dr. Dupree has been recognized as Georgia Association for Career and Technical Education, Outstanding Educator, Georgia Marketing Education Association Educator of the Year and is a member of the Georgia Department of Education's lead CTAE class of 2019. Dr. Dupree is on the board of multiple organizations, including Georgia Association of Career and Technical Education, Work-Based Learning Youth Apprenticeship Affiliate, the Society of Human Resource Management, Greater Henry Chapter, United Way of Greater Atlanta in Henry County, and the Clayton County Library Board of Trustees. She graduated from the United Way Volunteer Involvement Program and Leadership Clayton. A Junior League member of over 12 years, Yvette has served three terms on the Board of Directors as Vice President of Training and Development, Nominating Chair, and Recording Secretary. This year, she is the Sustainer Representative for the Learning and Development Council. Yvette earned a Bachelor of Business Administration in Marketing, Master of Arts for Teachers, and Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Georgia. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome Dr. Yvette Dupree, who will serve as our moderator for the panel discussion. It is my honor to serve as your moderator for this important discussion. This panel discussion will explore issues of equity in education, discuss the future of education, and the effects of the pandemic, and connect you to how you can advocate and actively engage in improving inequities. Please allow me to introduce panelists. First, we have Felisa Ford. Felisa serves as a digital learning specialist for Atlanta Public Schools, where she gets to combine all of her passions, technology, professional learning, and social studies. Felisa comes to us with a wealth of knowledge and over 20 years of experience, including time spent as a social studies teacher, social studies department chair, curriculum assistant principal, interim high school principal, and K-12 social studies coordinator. As a digital learning specialist, Felisa provides professional learning and training for teachers and students in her district. She loves to share tools and resources that help to create an engaging 21st century learning environment. 
Felisa is a Microsoft Innovative Educator Expert, Minecraft Global Mentor, Google Certified Educator, and a Buncee and Wakelet Ambassador. She has facilitated several MIE cohorts in Atlanta Public Schools and has provided training and support for educators globally as a way to promote the Microsoft Educator Program. Felisa is a co-author of the Microsoft Infused Classroom, a guidebook to making thinking visible and amplifying student voice. Additionally, Felisa is the co-author of the Minecraft Good Trouble Lessons, which are rooted in social justice. Felisa has her EDS in instructional technology. Our next panelist is Michelle Neely. Michelle Neely is the president of the State Charter Schools Foundation of Georgia, SCSF, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting charter schools with grants, donations, enrichment programs, and technical assistance. In this role, Michelle offers direct support to 43 state charter schools that serve over 44,000 students throughout Georgia and several approved schools preparing to launch. Michelle also leads the Georgia Strategic Charter School Growth Initiative, a partnership between SCSF, State Charter Schools Commission, and Georgia Charter Schools Association to educate communities about charter schools and facilitate the replication, expansion, and creation of high-quality public charter schools in underserved communities. The $4.1 million initiative provides training, consulting services, and grants to selected schools. Prior to the SCSF, Michelle was a governing board member and an administrative staff member of the International Charter Schools of Atlanta, ICS Atlanta. Before working with schools, Michelle was recognized as a program and operational expert and consultant in affordable housing. With the emphasis on the management of the Housing Choice Voucher Program, which is a public housing program for low-income families. She served the largest public housing authorities in the country, but her career focus shifted after she enrolled her daughters in ICS Atlanta and witnessed the impact that charter schools could have on students and communities. Michelle earned degrees from Mercer University, a BA, and Georgia State University, an MPA. Michelle is a provisional member of the JLA, and SCSF is a JLA community partner. Our next panelist is Alvin Glimpf. Alvin Glimpf is the Vice President for Strategic Partnerships at the United Way of Greater Atlanta. He is a staunch believer that all students need the opportunity to be educated so they can have realistic options to be productive citizens. Prior to joining the team at the United Way, he served as the Director of Grants and Partnership Development for, DeKalb, for the DeKalb County School District, Director of Evaluation and Strategic Partnership at Project Grad Atlanta, and was a research associate with the Georgia State University Applied Research Center in the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies. He also is the founder of Glymph & Associates, LLC, and is co-author of the novel, Tourist in Your Own Town. After earning a Bachelor's of Arts in Religion from Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, Alvin earned his Master's in Educational Research from Emory University in Atlanta. He has spent most of his life using his skills to improve conditions for underserved 
people across the nation. He serves as a youth basketball coach and as the board chair for the Brighter DeKalb Foundation, a foundation that supports the services provided by the DeKalb Community Service Board. In acknowledgement of his record of meritorious service, he has received the Maroon Citation from Colgate and the Atlanta Partners for Education A-plus Partnership Award by the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. And our fourth panelist is Comer Yates. Comer Yates has served for 24 years as executive director of the Atlanta Speech School. The Speech School founded 83 years ago as a free clinic for children who are deaf or hard of hearing, has evolved into the nation's most comprehensive language and literacy center that consists of four schools, clinical programs, and the Rollins Center for Language and Literacy. The school impacts the lives of approximately 1,400 children and adults on its campus and tens of thousands of students across Georgia and the nation through its Rollins Center's professional development program and its free online Cox Campus, coxcampus.org. With 195,000 members from all 50 states and 82 countries, the Rollins Center concentrates on providing educators, health providers, and families with the agency and expertise to break the cycle of illiteracy for children whose families have experienced generational denial to educational opportunity. Mr. Yates is a former high school teacher. He practiced law for 15 years and was an adjunct professor at Emory Law School. He volunteered for 20 years at Thero High in the Atlanta Public Schools, serving as its mock trial coach and founding co-chair of Thero's Summer Law Intern Program. Mr. Yates received the Distinguished Service Award from the Atlanta Bar Association and also received the WXIA Community Service Award for work with students with at Thero High School. He currently serves as the chair of the Atlanta Rotary Education Foundation, is a member of the executive committee of the Anti-Defamation League, Southeast Region. He is on the cabinet of Get Georgia Reading and is the past president of the board and serves as a member on the board of directors of Camp Twin Lakes, which is a recreational and therapeutic camp for children with serious illnesses and other life challenges. He is also past chair and member of Georgia's Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. Mr. Yates earned a bachelor's degree and juris doctorate from Emory University as a member of the Order of Coif, Omicron Delta Kappa, and the Order of the Barristers. In 2017, he received an honorary doctorate of laws degree from Oglethorpe University. As you have heard, our panelists have a wealth of experience to share. So we're going to go ahead and get started with our first question. Tell us, why is equity a critical issue in education? One reason that equity is a critical issue in education is because I'm sure you've often heard that education is considered the great equalizer. One reason this is stated is because equity can change, I mean, education can change the trajectory of a student's life or even a family's life. And so equity in education is very important. It's paramount that we have equity in education to give all students access. And I want you to understand that there is a difference between equality and equity. Equity is about giving students what they need to access the, their individual needs to access education. Equality is giving all students the same thing 
for education. So we want to focus on equity and meeting the needs of the individual needs of our students. Thank you. Michelle? Felisa did a great job of kicking us off. We have to think of something new to say. No, I, I think the most important thing to remember when we talk about equity is exactly what Felisa just, just started talking about, is making sure that we identify individual children's needs and where they're coming from so that we can determine the best ways to serve them so that they can fulfill their potential and lead productive lives. We're not talking about so that they can do well on a test um, on the Georgia milestones so that they get high scores. We're not talking about trying to make the schools look good. We are thinking about how do we help make sure that every single kiddo in a school, every single child in a community has the tools the resources and the support that they need to be successful. And it might mean accommodations for a child with disabilities. It might mean making sure that there's breakfast for a child who lives in poverty. Um, it might mean something totally different from the perspective of charter schools. Our schools are offering unique educational approaches that are not maybe appropriate for every single child, but might make the difference between a child being successful and fulfilling all of their their potential or not. So I, th I think this is one of the most critical issues we have right now when we're looking towards the future of Georgia um, and our community and, and just making sure that we have a workforce that you know is robust and that we have people who can be happy, healthy, productive citizens. I think the only thing I would add is that when you think about equity, it can go beyond the students. So um, equity with students is critical, but you also have to think about equity in terms of how are we engaging our parents, what are their needs, um, in terms of how are we funding our schools, is that, you know, uh, has to be critically uh, assessed, and then the, the partnerships or resources that are divvied out. And working at a school district for five years, as you mentioned, it was really evident in a school district like DeKalb how equity plays out every day in our schools. And when you look at DeKalb, it, you know, some people look at it in terms of two DeKalb's. You have North DeKalb, South DeKalb. I always looked at it as three, because while you have North DeKalb and you have South DeKalb, when you look at Central DeKalb in terms of what's going on in Clarkston and uh, the people that are coming from different countries and uh, the issues that they are dealing with, that's a whole nother dynamic specifically that caters, uh, involves equity. And then if you really want to look at four DeKalb's, if you look at that Buford Highway corridor, that's another situation that has to be addressed. So I think when you look at why is it so critically important, it's really about what we mentioned is this idea that we want all individuals to have what they need to be successful. And I think you can be an equity warrior and still want all people to be successful. Well, I'm glad you used the term equity warrior. I don't think anything um, less uh, will be sufficient. And I think educational equity, particularly in the first years of life, are critical because we know um, scientifically that what happens to a child, particularly in the first five years of life, is going to be lifetime defining. And we are very proud at the speech school to have started our organization with the Junior League 84 years ago. And back then, our purpose was to give voice to children who didn't have a voice because they were deaf or had cerebral palsy. Today, our, our focus is on children having a voice, every child having a voice, meaning the ability to decide their own future and make the greatest difference possible in the lives of others. And that is a 
that is a voice that's being denied to the vast majority of Atlanta's children. And if we're talking about, you know, we're talking about equity, we're talking about race in Atlanta, and we're talking about racism. To give you an example, if this meeting had been held anywhere, anytime before April 12, 1865, and we were talking about educational equity for black children, we all would have been subject to arrest uh, on this very spot because it was illegal to do anything to advance the voice of black children up until that time. So back to Alvin's point, trying to fight against a 403-year-old conspiracy against black children, state-sanctioned and state-led for 335 years of that time, demands much more than initiatives and pilots and a disjointed group of activities that might make it look like we're doing something, but all we're really doing because of our imprecision is further pathologizing black children. So I'm grateful that we're here to talk about this. So our next question, and um, Felisa, you kind of touched on this, so I want to uh, go ahead and go there. We're going to talk about, or the question is, is the belief that schools are the great equalizer helping students overcome the inequities of poverty, is that a myth? And why or why not? I think where we stand in education right now, it is a myth because we're not there. We haven't reached that point of equity in education for all students. Until we get truly serious about having equity for all students, whether it's uh, race, gender, um, language, then we can't say that it's the great equalizer. It's the equalizer now for some students and not all students. So it is a myth right now. We're still trying to get there. I agree. I think it should be. I think we want it to be. We want to believe especially that public education can be that great equalizer and that we are powering a system that's going to produce the best results for all children and, and give kids a chance to pull, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right, if we give them the right education. But are we giving them the right education? I was having a conversation with someone the other day who had very strong opinions about how schools should look and how they should act. And this particular woman was coming at it from her perspective of how she grew up, what her neighborhood looked like, what her school looked like, what her family experience was. And what seemed like equity to her didn't make sense to another woman at the table because this other woman's perspective was very different. Her background, her cultural heritage, the values that her family had, the neighborhood that she grew up in, the stability or lack thereof that she had in her life, what she needed from a school was very different. So I think one of the most important things we can all do from the beginning is try to erase the notion of one-size-fits-all one education. And when we are working off a one-size-fits-all education system, then public education cannot be the great equalizer. It, it cannot be. We cannot reach equality until we talk about equity. We, we don't want everyone to have, well, let me back up. I don't want everyone to have <laughs> the same thing, but that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be what works for different communities, different children. And when we can start doing that, when we can start disrupting the status quo, disrupting what we've always known about public education, what we've always expected schools to look like, and I think 
people are starting to question it right after COVID. For those of us who helped our kids at home <laughs> with online school and started getting a deeper dive into what their daily lives are like and what the curriculum is like and the engagement with, with their faculty and staff and all those different things, I think people are starting to question it. But until we can let go of the status quo and think about things in a different way, I don't know how it can be the great equalizer. We want it to be, and I hope we can get there. So somehow I agreed with all they said, but I think it is this the equalizer. And in, the, in a way that, because I believe that as you look at this system and the way our country is designed, that education is what gives people the most opportunities and options to be successful in this country. And when you take that into consideration, to me, education is the difference. And I appreciate what Comer talked about in terms of 150 years ago, how If you were trying to advocate for black people to read, it was against the law. And then fast forward and we have school systems where third grade reading in some schools, you have 3% of those kids who are reading on grade level. Like that in itself to me is worthy of a whole nother panel discussion, right? But I could use the example of myself where I have a father who grew up with an abusive father, and grew up in the worst of times in South Carolina and migrated to New York and how um, he escaped all of the Jim Crow laws and came up to New York. And if you had asked him when he left New York, his wildest dreams would have never imagined me sitting right here, all due to education. So that to me speaks to it being an equalizer. And I'm no exception. It's nothing extraordinarily, ex like I'm the rule far as I'm concerned. But to the point, there's a need for equity in realizing that a student like me coming out of what I was dealing with, New York City, the birth of crack, I needed people to deal with me differently. So thanks to equity, I'm sitting right here. Thus, I was able to take advantage of the educational opportunities that you mentioned, thus being able to sit up here next to this good brother Comer. But the better example that I really want to use is my time at Project Grad, where we were offering uh, scholarships to students at, at schools that were graduating kids at 15, 20, 30% when Project Grad came into Atlanta Public School. My opinion, criminal to have an institution existing that way. But my point is, when I keep in contact through LinkedIn, Facebook of some of those students, who came through Washington, who came through South Atlanta, who came through Carver, took advantage of the scholarship, took advantage of the additional support that we offered to not just the kids, to the parents, to the teachers, to the principals, to the school system because they needed it. These students are now working in accounting firms, law firms, graduating from some of the greatest institutions all around our country. That, to me, speaks to why education still has to be advocated for and still has to be understood as the greatest equalizer that has come through this uh, country. I'm, and I don't know why, I turned 70 recently and I think I'm just a cranky old white guy. I'm going to scream, get off my lawn at some point. But I, I certainly agree aspirationally with the idea that education is intended to be the great equalizer, but, but in terms of reality, I think, I mean, that's not just a myth. I mean, it's a total fraud. 
in a criminal fraud. I don't think you have to look any further than the Atlanta Public Schools reading scores. Um, and I wish I could just ask you to consider those reading scores and just maybe for a second think about the percentage of white children who read proficiently. If you think back to reading, let's just let's, let's use the Frederick Douglass quote, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. So let, let's think about the white children in the Atlanta Public Schools who are forever free under Douglass's definition. I don't know what your guess is, but 76% of white children in the Atlanta public schools read proficiently. Relative to, do you want to guess how many, what percentage of black children read proficiently in the Atlanta public schools? The number is 16%. 16% compared to 76%. 23% of Hispanic children read proficiently. For children not on free and reduced lunch in the Atlanta public schools, 70% read proficiently compared to 15%. And I really appreciate your story, Alvin, but I can tell you, I have sat in a room like this where a social service organization has recognized a person who has beaten the 403-year-old odds stacked against her and her family generation after generation. And a social service organization will, I mean, I'll just tell you this, I've been through this narrative so many times. And then they, the organization will celebrate and raise money off the backs of the white people in the audience around this one person's experience and how they helped her make it through this labyrinth of racism. And then everybody gives a standing ovation to the organization for what they did for this one person. And every white person in the audience, not everyone, but every social Darwinist there says, see, if she can make it, everybody can make it. And it just gives them one more day of making an excuse not to dismantle a system um, that is denying opportunity. And instead of our work, should be about changing the odds and changing the odds that are just absolutely immoral odds in our country. And relative to the point about there's not one size fits all, there is one science on how children learn to read and who gets which teachers get access to this training in order to provide that instruction and which te children benefit from those teachers is a, simply a matter of zip code, race, and ethnicity and nothing else but that. And when you see schools being able to apply um, their own standards around whether they're going to follow the science or not, I mean, that, there's, I mean that's just reprehensible. We, we know exactly what to do so that every child in this country can read and we refuse to do anything about it, except a few more pilot projects. Would we be piloting the polio vaccine right now and, and say that we're doing something moral? I don't think so. I told you I was cranky. So what are you, and you all have mentioned a few factors, but what, what are the factors that lead to inequities in education? I think um, Comer hit on some of those. When you talk about the systems, a lot of it is, systemic, the policies, the politics, the social social ills that impact the communities, which leads over into impacting the schools and drilling down to impacting students. These are barriers. And then when you go even deeper, the biases that are there. There are biases both explicit and implicit that where training needs to take place because some you don't realize some of the biases you have and then students are dealing with these in classrooms and where they're having a curriculum that is taught where they're 
not there's representation is not there for them. They don't see people that look like them or that represent. They're not learning or seeing images that represent them, their culture, their communities. So all of those are impacting students. And so when you see that you're not valued in the content that's being taught, then your set, that impacts your self-esteem, which also drills down to increasing student dropout rates. So it's just a, a cycle of barriers and impacts that are happening. And until we break this and decide that we really want change, then it's not going to happen. I'm going to... I'm going to answer that question with a story with, about my family, my privileged white family in an affluent community. And we talk a lot about this with our kids at home because I don't want them to think that, that what they experience is normal <laughs> or typical for all children. So when um, my kids are both teenagers, and I have a 16-year-old who's a junior in high school, and she's decided that she wants to go to the University of Georgia. When I went to college, UGA was a fine school, but it was everyone's backup school. Things have changed a little bit um, since we won't talk about which year. Um, a while ago, things have changed. And now the entering freshman class this year had a 4.4 GPA. And I think the average was a 32 on the ACT. I wonder how many of us would have gotten in at that time to that safety school at that, that, you know, that was a safety school then. But, so my kids now have a goal. They both want to go to UGA, and my 16-year-old is running out of time. She's a junior in high school. So when she struggles in a class, what do we do for her? We get a tutor. How much does a tutor cost? Minimum of $40 an hour for a decent tutor. Minimum. For those of you with itty-bitties, I'm just warning you right now. This is, this is what you're headed towards. Um, she was struggling with socially, emotionally, just struggling with her mental health after all the trauma that we've all experienced. So what did we do? We found a mental health professional to support her. And that, with our co we have insurance. So they pay for most of it, and our copay is $40 a week. We can do that. I work from home so I can transport her to her appointments when she needs to. We can do all these different things. My younger daughter realized that she didn't like her grade for algebra that was going to count towards high school credits, so she took summer school, which we had to pay for, $350 for a course. My point with this story is, and my daughter looked at me one day and she says, Mom, I got an A in this algebra class, but I just realized if we hadn't paid $350, I would not have had an A on my transcript, and that would have negatively impacted my ability to get into the University of Georgia a public university in our state. So I think part of it, when we think about barriers, everything, especially that Comer has talked about, Alvin's talking about, all these different things, Felisa, they all impact, but I would like to challenge all of my friends in this room to think about the everyday barriers to equity that we forget about and the things that we all take for granted of how all those little things add up the things that we would do for our children in a heartbeat, we wouldn't even think twice about. So many people don't have that ability to. And so when we look at the scores for my high school, my child's high school with hardworking, dedicated professionals, this is not a criticism of the people who are there in that building, but the scores and the rankings have so much more to do with the educational status of the parents, of the community, and the um, these socioeconomic conditions and what they're able to pay for, because I promise every one of my, my kids' friends has some sort of paid support. I think 
when you look at the barriers, I think it's really easy to just look at the barriers like one might look at, he talked about get off my lawn. If you looked at my lawn or a lawn that was not in the best shape, it's easy to just look at what's on the surface and just assume that, you know, maybe that's really the, the, the cause, just what you see. And I think when you look at these barriers, it's really about, um, we talk about systemic racism, and I, I really think it is what's underneath all of the factors that we're looking at right here. And so I, my point is that while we can look at the barriers and we can address whether it's the literacy issues, the, the disparities in math, um, the STEM exposure engagement, um, high school graduation rates, uh, who's working, who's going off to college, uh, economic stability, or people getting homes and living on the street. I mean, there's like disparities up and down the data, right? Whatever, wherever you look at it. But I really think to truly deal with equity, as Comer stated in his first statement, it's about understanding that racism is, in this society, really is the root of all of it. And how it impacts and plays out is what we're seeing. And you can go into any of these schools and look at the disparities and just blame what you look at. And you can blame the teachers for not doing a great job. You can blame the parents for not being engaged. You can blame the students for not valuing education. But when you really do the five whys analysis and say, well, why is that? And why is that? And why is that? Why is that? You'd probably get to three whys before you get to, oh, it's because we live in a racist society. And I think what's so important about that is we have these conversations about, you know, how are we going to deal with whether it's referred to as critical race theory or just truly understanding the history of our country? That, from my experience, as we have those conversations, is what moves people from understanding just, well, everybody just needs to do it all the same to, oh, I get it. That's why this student needs that and that student needs that because they truly understand that this is beyond us, but we can, beyond us in terms of whose fault it is, but it's not beyond us in terms of can we increase our effort to make a difference. And so that's why I'm a big believer in history. I'm a big believer in engagement. I'm a big believer in communication, especially cross-cultural communication because that's where true learning comes in and I... I really come to those conversations with an amazing just humility and grace and humility understanding that I don't have all this figured out. Humility in that I don't expect the other one to have it figured out. I, gosh, just so struck by the comments y'all just made. And um, again, thinking of systems and thing just where system is inequitable. Um, the percentage of black students at the University of Georgia, anybody know, 7.8%, such that my friend Darius Patillo, who's the district attorney, anybody, anyway, Henry County, he's the district attorney there. He said every day he was at the University of Georgia, he was asked either whether he was a basketball or a football player because there were so few black students. That's the only reason everybody thought he would have been there. And the Hope Scholarship is what has has segregated the University of Georgia in the way that, you know, it's not needs-based. Um, 
the, if you look at scores at schools where there is access to the kind of expertise and resources, then the chance of getting in the University of Georgia today from virtually, you know, from most of it, of Georgia schools is, is nearly impossible. And essentially, without a needs-based approach to the Hope Scholarship, at the um, independent schools in Buckhead, the Hope Scholarship is called the Range Rover Scholarship by parents, where if their children will agree to go to the University of Georgia in lieu of a northeastern university that's private, they will, um, the child can get a, a new Range Rover for compromising and going to the University of Georgia. And, of course, who's paying? Where's that Range Rover coming from? It's on the backs of our poorest citizens who've been denied access to educational opportunity and resulting economic opportunity, and they've got as much chance of making their way in life by playing the lottery as trying to earn a livable wage, so they might as well pay the lottery. So play the lottery and then pay for the Range Rover. Um, so that's the system. Um, you know, that's a fundamental part of the system that we have. So what are some measurable goals around equity and inclusion? What can we do about it? I'll take this. Increasing the number of minority students that are in advanced or rigorous classes, that's a measurable goal. We know that that's also an equity issue that school districts across the nation face. That there aren't, there's a disparity in the number of children of color who are in advanced classes, AP classes, IB classes, in public schools, and it's an issue to the point that the College Board has even deemed it an issue. So we know that's something measurable. Also, increasing funding, equitable funding, having an equitable funding source is something that is measurable. How are you going to fund schools in an equitable manner? Not an equal manner, but equitable. Something else that's measurable is how are you, your professional learning, having equitable professional learning that is based on training teachers on what is truly needed for the students, not just a one-size-fits-all professional learning that every student, every teacher has to have because that's not what's needed in every school. So that's also something that's measurable. Also having equitable learning environments, which means that your environments need to be equitable to meet the needs of those schools in one school may look completely different the environment in another school. So those are measurable goals that you can have to address the equitable issue in education. A, a quick note back to the Hope Scholarship. When I was talking about when I was in college and UGA was a backup school, that just happened. Comer did be the first year of Hope Scholarship, just interestingly enough, right? But funny how that, that worked. Um, I'm going to think a little bit bigger picture on goals and equity in education. I would like us to see what happens when students turn 18. Are they in stable housing? Are they in high-quality employment situations or in higher education? Are they accessing public aid services? Are they having to access SNAP or TANF or any of the other public aid that's out there because at the end of the day, we want all people to prosper, not to steal that from the United Way, but um, we want all people to, um, <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> yeah, she'll take, it and take the nice United Way plug, right? We, we, but we do, we want all people, we don't want to see 
just that we have good reading scores. What's the point of it? What's the point of the scores? The point of the scores is that these are indicators for success in life. That's what we want. We want to see the success in life and whatever path that is that each child takes to get there, but we want to make sure they have the resources and that they have everything that they need and that we are wrapping them around with support and care so that they can be successful in life. So I would like to see our our measurable goals be around what happens when they're adults and they're no longer in our care in the education system. And that's what we need to be looking towards and how do we get there. Yeah, definitely nothing wrong with a United Way plug. (laughs) For me, when it comes to measurable goals, it's about closing the gap, right, removing the disparities. And I think um, when Cassandra was opening up and she talked about how equity is not new for Junior League, equity is not new in this country, right? There's been a long-term journey and people trying to identify what are the needs and how can we make sure people have what they need to have an opportunity to be successful. And so what I advocate for are equity audits because it's not something new. We've evolved to a place where there are people who will come into your organization, assess it in terms of equity, and give you the measurable goals to say, hey, here's what you need to do, here's where the gaps are, and let's build some strategy. So I'm an advocate for that because I just think we're at that point where we don't have to make it up. We don't have to guess. You can bring in the equity expert and say, hey, what do we need to do? Who do we need to partner with? What type of resources need to be allocated? How? And the unwillingness is this idea that people don't want to give up the power, don't want to give up the success. And I've never looked at it. I just feel like the more successful people, the more opportunities that are given, the greater this experience this country will be. So I, I, don't, I never looked at it as a thing of, well, if I give this up, it's going to short me. I think at the end of the day, when we look at the, and, and let me be clear also, in many of our schools, the people who are fighting equity have the same complexion as me. So let's, let's I just want to keep it 100 in the sense that the criminal activity and it's, you know, people aren't getting arrested, but in my opinion, the criminal activity that's impacting these schools is not the same people that people Im- imagine. But when you go in those schools and you see people who are keeping the resources or who aren't trying to allocate them in an equitable way, you will be shocked in many of these schools, the people who are fighting to do it the same way that they've always done it because I guess they just want to get a pension. I'm not really sure what that's all about. I think, again, reading outcomes is the place to, I mean, would be the place to start. I mean, there's, you know, there's no reason within two or three years with a radical overhaul of teaching instruction, I mean, reading instruction, we couldn't see very, very different scores among our children. So that would be something, I mean, that would be the first place, focusing on outcomes. I mean, that's what not, I read a quote that you had added, it's not what resources you, you, you come in, you put in, it's, 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 it's the outcomes for children. Um, but around immediate thing I would do, um, something that exists um, in too many schools around dismantling, I would go into schools and I would say that any school that still has the, the tiles uh, in the hallway for children to be marched on, all those towels need to be removed 
And those are towels that are predominantly in, in the schools of black children in an institutionalized, as Marion Wright Edelman said years ago, school to prison pipeline. Um, and so I'd, I'd look at schools and say, you know, as long as we see children march down the hallways in total silence, catching a bubble or similar behavior that, I mean, we are, we are putting fetters on our children neurologically, socially, emotionally, intellectually, and otherwise. And now we know scientifically that kind of hyper-regulation of children starting in preschool and early childhood education is destroying children's prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex controls a child's working memory, attention, and executive functions. And because we've created a, a society where it's dangerous for a black child, particularly a black boy, to be noticed, we have, we have reverted to becoming co-conspirators with that dangerous society by silencing black children if that's somehow going to ever make them safe rather than giving them a voice. So, I mean, there are only two places where those towels exist, and those are in, in schools and in prisons. There's just no way to fully describe the damage we're doing to children, and not because they come from disadvantage, which is just, if we could drop terms like disadvantaged or marginalized or at risk, and rather than just saying cheated, robbed, stolen, forgotten, I mean, that's what's really gone on. But we continue to feed into a narrative, a deficit model uh, over and over again. And again, from my white point of view, I can tell you the number of white businessmen who love to see Black boys march down the hall wearing school uniforms and giving a firm handshake and raising their hand because here comes my next workforce who will work for me. And we, we let that go and not say anything about it. So I don't know what else to say. I would say if you do, if you walk into your child's school and they're demanding silence from your children, then they're demanding silence from children just like centuries of silencing children. Um, instead of teaching children to listen. And in preschool, you know, you can have all the quality-rated standards you want and all the measures, but if they're silencing children, those children are being robbed of their futures. And it's as simple as that. Anybody with a child in preschool? All you're, look, you're looking for four things. Are they building my child's language? Are they building my child's executive function or self-regulation? Are they building my child's critical thinking? Are they building my child's empathy? If they're forcing your child to comply rather than connect, they're harming your child. As we look to wrap up our panel, I would like to give each panelist uh, an opportunity to share with us uh, a final thought, maybe a couple of ideas of some things that our members could do to help to improve and bridge the equity gap. So I'll go. I'll I'll wrap up with... (laughs) What you, how you can continue learning, because I think that is key, to continue learning. And so there are some resources that you can go to. One would be um, to learn more about tolerance. It used to be tolerance.org, but it's learning for justice now. So that's a good website that you can go to. A lot of teachers use that when they're learning how to teach equity or equity or those controversial issues in the classroom. So that's something that's good. You can also donate to them. 
and they're a part of the Southern Poverty Law Center. They're located in Montgomery, Alabama, but they educate educators across the country. Also, the Anti-Defamation League has a, a arm, a no place for hate. That's another place where you can continue learning. You can also donate and volunteer. And then I would say you all are already doing this with the books, just donating books, donating books that are multicultural, that represent all children, whatever it is, So, and then read to children. Go to schools and read to children so that they can see, because we see that literacy has a huge impact on the outcomes of students as well. The first thing I would challenge everyone to do is to think every day, especially if you have children who are in school, think every day about what your children experience in, the, in school. What are you providing to supplement what are the resources that you know your children have that maybe other children don't have? Challenge the way you think about the way school should be. I was floored when my daughter went to high school and her classes were set up and taught exactly the way they were when I was in high school. <laughs> and I thought, I've learned so much in the way that I work and the last 20 years since, since I started my career has changed so dramatically, but our classrooms haven't. That's, that's concerning. So I, the first thing I would do is challenge you just to think about it and say, does it have to be this way? Do we have to, you know, is the status quo the right way for things to be? Like he was saying earlier, sometimes educators hold on to things dearly because it's just what they know. And don't be afraid to speak up. It's not that they're bad. It's not that they have bad intentions, but it's what they've always known. And it's hard. It's hard to do new things. We know that. It's hard to break out of it. So find, just question and challenge everything that you know. Second thing you can do, take a look at the school rank ranking sites. There are several out there, great schools, niche.com. Even CCRPI, which is the Georgia Department of Education's College and Career Readiness Performance Index. And look at what we are measuring. Are we measuring the things that you care about for children? Are we measuring the things that we should be worried about for Georgia's children and for our future? How much are those numbers and scores impacted by the things we've talked about tonight? How much is a reflection on the community and the families and the support that they're putting into the schools? And how much is a reflection on the schools themselves? And what are they doing to prepare our children for bright futures? That would be the second thing I would tell you to do. The third thing I would say is that our state school superintendent post is up for election. There are two candidates right now. Get to know your candidates and ask questions. Ask questions so that you're informed and that you know, and start developing your own position about what you care about education. How can we get to higher literacy rates, as we've said, lead to higher outcomes and better outcomes? What are the things you care about? And you can educate yourself and start making an informed decision about how you're going to vote this November. So I would definitely start with become more informed, advocate, serve. I think one of the ways we as individuals can impact in this system is by being intentional in how we bring the resources that we have, the time, the treasure, the network, to impact what we know is important. So I, I would say that's critical. 
I'd also say in terms of as you are trying to determine where are the disparities, I do have to plug the child well-being index because it is a major part of my work. So for those who don't know, the United Way has this amazing online tool where you can put in a zip code and say, hey, 30216, how does that zip code compare to the region in terms of 14 different measures, everything from third grade reading, eighth grade math, high school graduation rate, 14 different measures that give you a sense of how is that community doing serving children and families. It might help in terms of how are you going to um, direct your time and treasure. So big believer in using data to inform our efforts. And I, I think lastly, I'm just uh, the, the last thing I would just advocate for is continue to have hope. Love is a powerful thing, so is hope. And while it is when you watch the news, when you walk the streets, when you read social, like on media and social media and online and stuff, it's really easy to get disgusted and discouraged. So take care of your mental health and wellness and make sure you are okay when you leave your home and come back and all of that. But that being said, stay hopeful because our kids, our families, the ones who are going through it on a daily basis, who aren't as privileged as many of us, have less reason to be hopeful and they still are hopeful every day. And so we have to come and show up in that way, in my opinion, so that that energy they feed from us so that they understand that there is a reason to be hopeful. There is a reason to understand that I need to learn to connect. I need to learn how to listen for a reason. And there's hope in me putting in this effort. And the parents have to feed off of that hope because, again, like, you know, I was in a classroom about two years ago. There's a fifth grader who's, I'm asking him, how's he doing? He's sharing some of the worst life experience that I had ever heard, and that was just his weekend. And I'm sitting here like, wow, this is what you come to school with every day? And you still came to school, still smiling, wanting to engage with me. That's the type of energy we got to give back in return. So stay hopeful as you do this work. The combination of being a hopeful equity warrior, I think, I, I think that's a great way to think about it. And I'm really lucky. I mean, it's just phenomenal to me. I mean, it's just such a privilege that here I am. I mean, the Atlanta Speech School, originally its name was the Junior League School for Speech Correction. So I'm, here I am 84 years later sitting with you in a school that opened as a free school. We've never turned away a child because of financial limitation. I am so lucky that my job demands that I be hopeful. Our founder, with no money, said, if my child has a voice, then I'm going to spend my life making sure every child has a voice. So that's, you know, that remains my, my job today. So what we've We've, I don't know, be able to share that. We've come up with a list of places. If you want to make a difference for one child, which I'll urge, um, we've given a list of organizations where you could volunteer, reading with the child, doing other things. In these organizations, you'll make a difference. The other thing I would do is to fight against those organizations that aren't making a difference. If you work for a company where the CEO goes and reads a book, during pre-K week and shows up and has 
his or her picture made and it's posted in the paper or somewhere and that's all they do. I mean, it's just a damn, you know, darn sham. Uh, and all they're doing is pathologizing children, black children particularly, because everybody, you know, and companies around Atlanta have sent volunteers into school. They're reading the wrong book with the wrong quartile of children the wrong time of day, not using the science. And then everybody says, oh, wait a minute, what happened to Sunnyside School? We put 2,000 volunteers in there, and their reading scores are still terrible. That was your fault. You, you had a chance to make a difference, and instead you decided for a photo op. I'm all for building playgrounds about Atlanta, but, but come on. Come on. Let's, let's, I mean, let's get real about whether we're really committed to the children we're trying to make a profit. I'm just as darn cranky as when I started. In fact, I might have gotten more cranky. Um, but anyway, just enough is enough, for God's sakes. Oh, I would say around God, um, I would encourage your places of faith to be engaged um, in this effort. Quick story, I'm sorry. Just got to tell this. I was in a preschool, pre-K classroom, pre-K center, highly quality rated, and the teacher was screaming at the children, screaming at the top of her lungs for them to be quiet. And it was just horrific. And I noticed around her neck she had a lanyard that said WWJD. And I thought, well, okay, let's go find out what would Jesus do. <laughs> and so I went back to the Bible to find out if Jesus ever told anybody to be quiet. He only told two people to be quiet. One, well, actually, 13 people. He told, he told, well, people, he told a demon who was inside a guy rolling around on the floor in the synagogue to come out and to shut up. And then he told the disciples to shut up when they were yelling at him they were going to die on the Sea of Galilee because of the storm. And he said, are you kidding me? I've just been telling you all day about faith. He did have a time when he was told to keep the, tell the children to be quiet. He was in the temple turning over the tables and the children of the temple started singing Hosanna to the son of David. The priest in the temple started telling him to tell the children to be quiet. Then he quoted Psalm, I think, 8, saying, don't you know that, the, you know that praise to God comes from the lips of children? So I just wanted to say to her, somebody had caused her not to be able to practice her faith with the children and demanded her to silence those children and not live her faith. That is a society that has done something really wrong for her and really wrong for her children. So anyway, quit silencing our children. Give them a voice. Let us thank our panel for such a rich and um, informative discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of JLA Inside Out. If you have feedback, thoughts, or questions, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at insideout at jlatlanta.org. Hi, I'm Stephanie Collett, and I am the chair for the 2022 Literacy Walk. Come join us at the Literacy Walk on Saturday, November 19th from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. at Sutton Middle School. You can register for this event at www.jlawalk.org. 2022.eventbrite.com. We can't wait to go the extra mile for literacy with you.